0: Your high Canada. That music means the Hilltail dialogue is upon us, the last radio hour of the week. My guest, as he is most week, is Dr. Larry Arn. This, however, is a show that originally broadcast in 2015, a series of shows on the Lincoln Douglas debates. And we can't actually do any better than we did in those seven shows. Uh, making use, as we did then, of the Lincoln-Douglas debate recreations by David Strathern and Richard Dreyfuss, a bit here and a bit there, to give you a little bit of color. Go and get that BBC recording. It's probably the best investment in an audio book you can ever make. You'll get enough to sell you on that in the course of this. But when we take this originally, Dr. Arn was on his way to get the Bradley Prize in D.C. Dr. Arn, how are you? Very well. How are you here? Well, I'm. I'm. I'm bothered. I've. I've got all these travels that i've got to do next week i've got to go to dc to hear this lecture on wednesday night because this fellow named arn is receiving this prize called the bradley prize at the Kennedy center and and i'm looking forward to this lecture but it's a pain in the neck to get to dc in the middle of the week I i hope it's a good lecture
1: you know i don't even want to go myself <laughs>
0: Kennedy Center, let. Congr- I'm just telling the audience again. We have a Bradley Award recipient on the other end here. Uh, congratulations! How's the how's the work on the speech going? Uh,
1: well, you know it's uh, it's been it's been it's a wonderful thing, and I'm very grateful. I let me stipulate that. But also, it's a miserable experience, and the reason is, first of all, my speech is all written and i And I have to read it, and I have to send it in a week early ooh that's a discipline- a discipline to which I am not accustomed to. <laughs> i I have seen you, and you're a good speaker, and I have seen you write your speech while you're being introduced many times <laughs> and I confess that I might be guilty of that from time to time, but goodness gracious,
0: a week early <laughs> a week early I actually think that may violate our union's rules about speaking. <laughs> <That's> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, they, they, I, I couldn't really protest because what were they going to say? Yeah, what are, you, what are you a pundit or something?
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're an academic. You're a scholar, by God. You've got to write things down. I'm supposed to be supposed to be written. Uh, what, do they produce it for the audience? Is that why it's got to be submitted?
1: Oh, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a terrible thing, Hugh. Um, they sent a, a team to the college and other places to interview people about me. And to film me not saying anything, just in various poses that I never adopt, <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to and they're, they're going to show this video, and then uh, and one shot. This is I shouldn't be telling this. This is a glorious and great thing, and I am deeply grateful for it. But also, one shot was I have to look away from the camera and then turn and look into the camera. And this was actually referred to as a hero show. (laughs) And and when I was finally permitted to talk, I said, you know, heroism is a lot easier than I thought it
0: was. (laughs) This is very good for the college, and it is a very much deserved honor to you and the college. But producing glory pieces is actually terrible work. It's really awful, (laughs) because it strips the dignity right off of the tree, doesn't it?
1: Mm. You know, I, how many times you just to take an opposite tone, to name something that has the utterly opposite tone, how, how many times a week, every time I go anywhere, does somebody walk up to me and say, you and you, Hewitt, must really be friends? <laughs> <laughs> and, and what they're referring to is the way we carry on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna give them something else that I thought about you this week, Um David Brooks was a guest last week, and in his marvelous new book, The Road to Character, uh, uh, much of which I agree with, some of which I don't, but much of which, there is a portrait of George Marshall, which is wonderful, and included within that portrait is a story I have never heard before, which is as Marshall lay dying and in a coma, an aged Winston Churchill visited him at the hospital, which I assume would be Walter Reed, and stood in the doorway weeping because George Marshall was comatose in the bed in front of him. Have you heard that story before? No, I have
1: not. Uh, I do know that Churchill admired George Marshall very much, also argued with him a lot. They, they, they had a very fundamental disagreement in 1943 and 1944, very fundamental, and it was about um, um, how far east... How rapidly the Allied armies would get, and by what route. And Marshall was very much for a direct route straight to Berlin, from France, which would leave the whole of Eastern Europe to the Soviets. And they argued about that a lot, but but and I say that, and that's very true. but it's also true that they got on too. and they, in the end, uh, the tragedy of not being able to move farther east, Uh, unfolded the way it did, and it's not clear it could have been prevented even if Churchill had been listened to.
0: And I imagine that the Marshall Plan was a great and glorious thing that George Marshall conceived of and that Churchill was grateful for the rebuilding and for the fellowship in war. Last night I was with Michael Morrell, who's who's taken some criticism from some of our friends for uh, his actions as acting director of the CIA and deputy director of the CIA during Benghazi, but who served 33 years and was with George W. Bush on 9-11 and has a marvelous career and is a patriot. And I said to him, I remarked that he stayed to the end until no one wanted him around anymore. And it's a glorious thing that some people will do that and I think Churchill probably looked at Marshall as someone who just gave everything that he could give to the cause. Well, Churchill
1: called the Marshall Plan the most unsorted act in human history. Wow. He, 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 thought, he thought it was, uh, you know, and by now it's the Truman administration, right? And Churchill had enormous doubts about the Truman administration. And it just came right round The Berlin Airlift the Truman Doctrine regarding Greece and Turkey, and then the Marshall Plan. And it was everything that Churchill had hoped the United States would do after the First World War. And he could see the United States taking its place in the world, and that there could be, at one point, about 10 years after the Marshall Plan had been going, uh, Churchill is retired now. And uh, he looked at a friend and he said, you know, we might just have to put up with 30 years of peace.
0: (laughs) now i also the 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 idea of churchill weeping brings me around to the second question earlier this week he was on again today senator tom cotton was on and he was late because he'd been attending the funeral of a slain deputy sheriff uh, whose daughter had spoken and senator cotton was overcome with emotion as he spoke to our audience about deputy smith and churchill was overcome with emotion and i wanted to ask you today as we talk about lincoln and douglas are uh, warriors given to this, are, are people more prone to emotion if they have in fact been in battle?
1: Well, the good ones, of course, yeah. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that can, that can lead one to fight. And, and uh, you know, David Brooks wrote his, his uh, article about character, and there are as many different characters as there are people. But uh, thuggish or bestial or cruel characters don't weep in battle. Uh, generous High-minded characters, even though sometimes they, they can slaughter very greatly, weep at the loss, of course, because war is a terrible tragedy. Whoever and, wins.
0: And that brings us to Lincoln. I do not recall, and just tell me if I'm simply not recalling, that Lincoln was prone to public displays of emotion. Was he?
1: Uh, yeah, sure he was. Uh, but here's what, here's what you have to do to see it. There's a, there's a man named Mellon, M-E-L-L-O-N, and I'm forgetting his first name, but he did this wonderful, it's one of my very favorite books I own, big picture book of most of the photographs of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the way it's laid out, it's, it's a very large format, and the, and the pictures are very carefully restored, and they're put in chronological order in this book. And on the opposite leaf from every one of them is some quote from Lincoln from the time the photograph was taken. And you watch his face between 1860 and 1865, change. And he just became a very old man. And, uh, and, and then just read, go, go look at the picture that's near the second inaugural address in that book and read the second inaugural address. And that is a poetic weeping. And then there are records of him sitting disconsolate, alone with only his close friends seeing and there are a time or two recording of him crying in
0: public. I, I I remember in Doris Kearns Goodwin book when his son died at the White House, he was inconsolable, and that is one of the most uh, heart wrenching episodes because to lose your son in the middle of losing all your uh, charges, the people for whom you stand, the, the men and women in your in your custody in the country torn apart. Uh, it's it's really remarkable how he even got through it. And and Churchill as well, uh, when you think about it, when we come back from break, we'll talk about uh, the inner core of the, the man Lincoln at the second debate, because I think there is genuine anger that I was unaware of at the Freeport, Illinois, second Lincoln Douglas debate. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at All of the course offerings by this great college are at hillsdale.edu, including Constitution 101. Stay tuned. Dr. Larry Arne, recipient of the aforementioned Bradley Prize, uh, will be back after the break. Stay tuned. If and when
1: news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first, first, when Hugh
0: Hewitt continues. Twenty-one minutes after the hour, America. Choo Hewitt with Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College and recipient of this year's Bradley Prize, for which he will be honored next week at the Kennedy Center. I will be in attendance in the audience. Don't trip, Larry, as you come out onto the stage. <laughs> Don't even think about it between now. <laughs> You know, uh, (laughs) uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I don't know that I ever read them in full. I read A Crisis of a House Divided by the late Dr. Harry Jaffe, your teacher, and uh, guest on this show. But now that I've sat down, they're really quite remarkable. And the second one, where Lincoln goes first, and to remind our audience and the Steelers fans, uh, they alternate. Uh, They're an hour. The second guy goes for 90 minutes, and then the first guy comes back for 30 minutes. So it's 60, 90, 30. And in the second debate, Abraham Lincoln goes first. And am I right? He is angry?
1: Yeah, the, 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 the story is, um, I, I'll, I'll tell you my own opinion about that in a minute. But the story, basically, the, the popular story, and sort of the consensus view is, Lincoln got a lot of mail after the first one saying he was too passive. I don't believe that. Um, I believe something else explains it. But the second one, he comes for him. And he's going first, remember. And so, and you know, in the, because there were seven debates and because Douglas went first in the first one, Douglas got to go first one more time than Lincoln did. And there was a big advantage in that because you've got the crowd fresh and you can lay the terms of debate. And in the first one, we all remember, Douglas poses these seven questions and, and Lincoln refuses to answer them and uh And you know that was and, and that's because, by the way, there are many reasons for that, which I'll talk about if you want me to, but uh, one of them was that was Douglas prescribing how Lincoln would use all his time. Yes, so now the second time Lincoln's going to go first, and he shows up and he's got his plan, and he he begins by answering Douglas's questions twice, and the first time he asks them literally answers them in a literal, lawyerly way,: Yes. All the questions begin, are you pledged? Lincoln answers them all, no, with one exception. Number six. Where he he says, I imply that I believe this. So he he wasn't pledged in any of these cases, these seven questions. But then he said, now I'm going to answer them for real. And when I'm finished, I'm going to put four questions to Douglas. And so Lincoln answers all these questions. and And it's very dramatic. Because he answers them literally first, the way you you hear it, counsel people to answer on the witness stand, just answer the question and don't say anything more. Answer it literally, Uh, but then the second time he gives real answers and says that's what he's doing, and that sounds to to my ear, to to reads to my eyes rather, Uh, that reads very powerfully. Uh, Oh, I should interrupt and say we we didn't talk yet. Um, My friend and yours. I don't know if you know him as well as I do, but my, one of my students, Ryan Walsh, a great lawyer who listens to these things religiously, sent me a link to an audio book of David Strathairn, the actor, taking Lincoln's part in these debates. Oh no! And, wow! And and and, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss, the actor, taking Douglas's part. And huh. all of this is introduced by Alan Gelso, a very fine historian from Gettysburg College. And uh, and so is this. It's just a tour de force, and I've listened to the first two now.
0: Oh, I'm going to go get that. I, did, I was oh, it's awesome. unaware. get
1: it. You get it. It's, you get it. And, and they do a really great job. And sure enough, Lincoln's part is very powerful through this, right? Because he just lays about him uh, in giving these more uh, complete answers to Douglas's questions. And that sets him up to ask his four now. So now, Douglas has got a lot on his plate, um, and uh, and so the, the the common reading now to answer your question directly is that Douglas was the most on the defensive at Freeport, and the common reading is Douglas was more commonly on the on the defensive than Lincoln was. That Lincoln strengthened through the course of the debates. That Douglas probably won two or three, including the first one, and that Lincoln won the others. So that's mostly how
0: people score it. People will continue to score it, and they can score the seven in a series that we are replaying from 2015 in this new time frame with new ins and outs, etc., all I want you to do, though, is stay right where you are, because I must assure you, these are among the very best of the hundreds of Hillsdale Dialogues we have done, originally recorded in 2015, back in 2021. Dr. Larry Arne is my guest. We're talking about the second of seven Lincoln-Douglas debates. As you heard Dr. Arn just now say, uh, Stephen Douglas won the first one, and he may have won the second one. Lincoln closed strong here. To come back, we'll talk more about... Lincoln-Douglas debate, number two. You're
1: in the middle of a non-stop, action-packed information
0: blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arne about the second Lincoln-Douglas debate. I can't tell you enough. Go and get the recording by David Strathman and Richard Drivis, originally Released by BBC, uh, 14 different CDs, every minute of the debate recreated. I give you a a second here, 30 seconds there of it. You get a taste of what they are, but you really have to listen to them all. Dr. Arn and I are going to continue on for the next seven weeks talking about these because these debates are the pinnacle of American rhetorical exchange. They are the summit of a debate by two gifted orators, as Straten and Dreyfus demonstrate to you, talking about the most important issue, indeed, it would lead to civil war, by the wisest man to have ever led the Republic Abraham Lincoln you just don't want to miss it we go back to it right now but uh, you do not
1: no I don't and and the reason is I think Alan Gelson makes this point too but uh, Lincoln is doing something very different from Douglas It's it's and and the audience shouldn't miss the forest for the trees and I'll try to help first of all Lincoln's Arguments from one week to the next week to the next week are different every time. Uh, and that's curious because Douglas is a very repetitive. Uh, that's curious because as soon as the debates are over, Lincoln starts putting a book together to publish the debates. Lincoln is telling a whole story from start to finish, and he wants to get it on record, and he wants to circulate it because, my opinion is, he, he understands that this, this argument is not going to be over just because of this one election. And so he is laying a complete case which he has researched for years. That's the first difference. The second difference is Lincoln's arguments are moral in a terribly different sense than Douglas's, And I invite the audience to do this exercise. First of all, You will misread these debates
0: if you don't think that Douglas is very formidable. Oh, my gosh. Lincoln spends part of his talking about how this is a distinguished United States senator. He has served nearly 12 years and is a character not at all limited as an ordinary senator, but his name has become of worldwide renown. It is most extraordinary that he should so far forget. He goes on to, but he, he wants people to understand Stephen Douglas is a big deal.
1: Yeah, and see... And and thought you know he dresses pretty as a peacock, and uh, he just he just cracks a smile on every face when he shows up because he's got charisma. And Lincoln is awkward and uh, ill dressed and ungainly, and uh, and he grows on you. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing is ask yourself after you've appreciated the power of Douglas and don't miss that. That's by the way one of the key arts of my teacher's grade book, Crisis of the House Divided. Understand that Douglas is very formidable. But the the second thing is more more profound, and that is ask yourself the question what Douglas ever asked the people to do that they might not want to do. Huh. What thing does he ever propose to them that he can't be confident most everybody will agree with? Uh, And and where does he ever say uh, the right thing to do, no matter what, whether you want to or not, is this thing? Isn't his argument always, the thing you want to do is the right thing and you should just do it?
0: So I'll
1: parse that out a little bit.
0: Don't go anywhere, Mary. This is... This is fat. If you have not yet read the Lincoln Douglas debates, go and get them before next week and catch up or do the third one. And we'll be right back after the break with our third segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Thirty-four minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College. Next week, honoree of the Bradley Foundation, the recipient of the Bradley Award, which uh, will be conferred in Washington, D.C. But this Friday, as he is most Fridays, participant in the Hillsdale Dialogue, we are focused today on the second of the seven Lincoln-Douglas debates in a series on these debates, which will carry forward until we were done with this and then into Lincoln himself. So you were saying when you went to break, uh, Lincoln as a project beyond the answer of this and justice and and judge Douglas simply never asks anyone to do anything that they wouldn't want to do. And he simply urges them to do it. Your point then is
1: then you don't like slavery. You can keep it out of your state or you can move to a state that has kept it out. You think the blacks are inferior. You can hold them in an inferior position. Uh, You think they're your equals. You can move to Maine where they kind of treat them that way. Right? So, douglas's point is that and everything's fine that's his point things are in the condition they were left by the fathers who founded our country and all we got to do is leave them in that condition that's his argument now lincoln's argument is completely different from that and see one of the there are four or five major points of clash between them and one of them is lincoln's house divided speech oh yes by the way Help to make Lincoln president because it's this claim that there's a judgment pending on the nation, a judgment of the Lord, right? He's quoting Jesus when he says, A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says, and see, by the way, he announces that the judgment has been delivered in his famous second inaugural address. And so his posture is we have to do the right thing to be worthy of our freedom.
0: And that was controversial. I want the audience to know Judge Douglas kept bringing up the House Divided speech. He used it as an indictment of Lincoln.
1: That's right. That's right. And so, and his view is, because remember, manifest destiny. Time is on our side. Everything is going great here. Why does this Lincoln have to come and make such a mess? out of things that are common, ordinary, always accepted to be the way they are see and 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 that you see that's in the end the clash is
0: about that there is a personal aspect in Lincoln's opening of the second debated Freeport he refers to Douglas as an evil genius that has uh, shown to everyone in the world that there is no advantage on virtue over vice that's a profound I didn't realize it got that personal Larry Arnold.
1: yeah well see that's And that's something more than personal, see, because Lincoln's formulations, you know, because Lincoln, by the way, is like a prophet, Warning, right? There's a law, and we are in violation of that law, and we are going to suffer for it if we don't stop violating it, right? And the people who say that we don't have to worry about that, those people, he always says, is that in the end, the only principle of action is self-interest, they say. He says that. He says that at one point, it's just like the old serpent in man that says, you work, I'll eat. So you see, and then, and then if that can be done by anybody to anybody, that can be done by anybody to you. And that is the judgment that is coming.
0: What is also spectacular about this Douglas opens his response by saying, The silence with which you have listened to Mr. Lincoln during his hour is credible to this vast audience composed of men of various political parties. So Lincoln is saying very hard things, and he's being met with, I gather, respectful, intentional silence.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, if the state votes, you count up the state votes across the state, and it's just very likely that most of the people in the audience were for Lincoln. And, and, uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't a landslide, right? So it's a very divided audience, and there's lots of catcalling and hooting, and there's partisan newspapers giving different accounts of the action they see. And all that's true. And on the other hand, People listened in the main, thousands of people listened in the main and rapt attention
0: for hours. And if we could export Stephen Douglas to every campus in America when he says nothing is more honorable to any large mass of people assembled for the purpose of a fair discussion than the kind and respectful attention that is yielded not only to your political friends, but to those who are opposed to you in politics... He would get an honored place in American politics if if the left would simply buy into Stephen Douglas there. One more segment, America, don't go anywhere, because Douglas makes an argument that I found very powerful and compelling, and I want to hear what Dr. Larry Aaron says about it when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Forty-four minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. the Hillsdale Dialogue this week, the second in a series of seven devoted to Lincoln-Douglas debates. We're on the second of the seven debates. Two things I want to cover, Dr. Arne, in this segment. One is um, the extraordinary complexity of these dialogues uh, that are going on between Lincoln and Douglas hold the common man's attention, and they're very detailed, and it's not something... I talked to Chris Christie on this show yesterday about the debate format and 90 minutes and how it ought to go to three and four hours and Christie agreed that has got to be longer and he's willing to do two-hour town hall. These guys stood there for three hours in front of people doing this again and again, and I wonder if we haven't dumbed down our people by expecting so little of them in these conversations.
1: One of One of Churchill's main complaints about the way modernity was going was that people are presented, he said always, with canned opinions readily thought through, right? So what's happened to American politics, just take a snapshot from, you know, eighteen from eighteen fifty eight until today. What's happened now is that everything is centrally managed, just like everything in the government, right? So the primaries have to fit there's very little state option and who can vote and stuff like that, how they go about it. And, and the parties make up their mind. People have rights to be in the debate, right? And, you know, why do they have rights to be in the debate, by the way? And, and so what, what if you just did what? What if we did it the way Lincoln did it, right? The way Lincoln ran for president, which was he stalked Douglas. He'd just go to the same place and talk to the same crowd when Douglas was leaving. What if, uh, what if somebody just raised a bunch of money today, which is how you get on TV, if, you, if, you, if they won't just put you on, right? What if somebody just raised money and just got on TV? What if somebody did things newsworthy and developed a following so they had to put them on TV? Stuff like that, see? And so now, instead now, they're going to line 20 of them up there. They're going You know, I heard, by the way, that a very smart person I know who's helping organize some of these debates is limiting. They're having two sets of debates, so they can limit one said, to the actual leading 10 candidates. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, wow, isn't that too
0: many? Don't go anywhere. A lot more of this Hillsdale Dialogue. Remember, this was originally recorded in 2015, and we're updating it. Come back for the final segment of this week's Hillsdale. This is the Hugh Hughes Show. America, the Hillsdale Dialogue underway. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. This is originally a 2015 Hillsdale Dialogue, the second of the two Lincoln-Douglas debates. Make sure you get the BBC recording in its entire glory by David Statham and Richard Dreyfus. I, I want, however, this was occurring in the middle of the debate season when I was leading the debate at the Reagan Library along with my CNN colleagues for the Republican presidential nomination. So you hear me refer to that throughout. But this is the close of the second Lincoln-Douglas Debate Review with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Remember, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus and keep listening to this, and you'll enjoy this Hillsdale Dialogue. That's actually the one that I'm involved in at the uh, at the Reagan Library. The gipper who paid for the microphone would be very upset with the way it's going, but I don't get to make that call. Here's the second thing I want to make sure people get. Judge Douglas had an appeal to me in this speech. You cannot limit this great republic by mere boundary lines, saying, "'Thus far shall go and no further.'" Any one of you gentlemen might as well say to a son 12 years old that he is big enough and must not grow any larger. And in order to prevent his growth, put a hoop around him to keep him in his present size. What would be the result? Either the hoop must burst and be rent asunder or the child must die. So it would be with this great nation. You alluded to this earlier. Douglas is tapping into American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, which, truth be told, still has a powerful appeal to me. I mean, I I think we could export. Our model everywhere And you've always been cautious about that But Douglas is appealing I might have gone for it, Larry That's what I ask myself do you, do you find yourself ever thinking I might have gone the wrong way in this Because of the what he dangles in front of you Which is the vast continent
1: Well, I, you know, I, of course And on the other hand I was ruined early and, and, and first, You know, when I first studied this I was taught to take Douglas with great seriousness to make the case for him and the case for him dwells on that right the greatness of america yeah. the, the scope of it the expanse of it the marvelous opportunities it offers and and you see you can only be worthy of those so you know just what does lincoln reply to that you can only be worthy of those if you deserve it and and how do you deserve it now notice by the way it's in freeport where douglas makes the most of fred douglas the runaway slave right and he makes a big deal of the fact that that right there in freeport the very well dressed kind of aristocratic looking negro runaway slave fred douglas rode through town in a carriage driven by a white man and is that what lincoln wants you see that and and that is very important to Douglas's appeal, and that's not very high-minded because, by the way, that's not limited government. Is the law going to say where you ride in a carriage? And you know, Fred Douglas was a brilliant human being and a brilliant speaker, anyway, as good as as uh, Stephen Douglas. And you know, we're going to have laws now that a black man can't ride in the back of a carriage course those laws were extant and went on until the 20th century but uh but that's his point right and he makes a lot of that and what you have to understand is is an undertone for both of them the undertone for douglas is lincoln's going to have White people marrying black
0: people. Oh, right. and he refers to the black Republican Party again and again and again, again and of how again. the abolitionists uh, destroyed, abolitionized the two parties and lead the old line Whigs and the old line Democrats captive, bound hand and foot into the abolition camp. It, it is sinister at some points.
1: Very much, and see, and Lincoln is saying often in this Freeport debate, for example, he's saying. And slavery is going to spread everywhere, right? And that means it's going to be in Illinois, too. And that means it's not just that people are repelled by it. Lincoln is repelled by it, and people are repelled by it. In the South, people are repelled by chain gangs and and, uh, bleeding blacks whipped, right? That's ugly. And the, the kind of people who manage that are a low class of person, wherever it's practiced. So, Lincoln is not just relying on that, although he very much is. In addition, he understands that people don't want that, including just having the blacks around. And so, the point is, this is a nation locked in a death grip, right? Over, and in the end, by the way, I remind people why is this such a fight? Because Douglas's speeches would have been impossible in in 1790 nobody was saying this country is founded on the white basis and the whites are always going to be tops right everybody spoke of slavery as a tragedy back then and so it's this change in principle which has to do with the idea of evolution and the evolution of the species and of man and has to do with uh, manifest destiny that somehow it's a kind of scientific fact that we are appointed to dominate the Western Hemisphere. Those things have come in, right? And that's
0: what makes the crisis. The crisis continues, but we're gonna, we're just gonna come back next week and continue the crisis with the third Lincoln-Douglas debate. Don't forget, head to Amazon.com if you're charmed and you want to, uh, to hear the rest of the Stratton and, and Dreyfus tapes. All glorious, uh, fourteen CDs. It's just. Uh, 21 hours of tape. I can't play that for you. We can't even play a little more than the samples we give you to tease you into buying it, but you should get it and you should visit Hillsdale.edu. Listen to all the Hillsdale dialogues, hundreds of them, and come back next week for the next Hugh Hewitt Show.
1: But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.